Hello and welcome to another edition of the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Since the popularity of spiritualism in the Victorian parlour, there have been a number of well-known and, in some cases, celebrity individuals who've advertised themselves as psychic mediums. Their veracity has always been, and continues to be, a source of great debate. The rise of the paranormal programming strand on television both in the UK and America and beyond has allowed some of these people to rise to become household names. But even before this, there were some very well-known stage performers in this area. Today we examine the life and work of a man who, despite being very high in the ranks of spiritualism and with a prolific career as a psychic medium and traditional physical medium, is not considered to be among these household names today. The late Gordon Higginson. Gordon's work is both copious and complex, and as such, this is a feature-length interview. Taking us through this investigation is my guest for this episode, Howard David Ingham. Howard is the writer of The Age of Miracles, Essays on the Collapse of History, and We Don't Go Back, A Watcher's Guide to Folk Horror. Their latest book is Cult Cinema, a personal exploration of sects, brainwashing and bad religion. They co-host the podcast Bergcast, examining the work of Nigel Neal, and are also co-curator with myself and Icy Sedgwick of the Rural Gothic series of online conferences. Right, well, Howard, welcome to the Folklore Podcast. It is lovely to have you here. Always a pleasure, Mark. So today we are going to be talking about psychic mediums, and I'm just going to start by saying that this is something of a divisive topic uh, for many people. Uh, We are not going to set out to either prove or disprove psychic mediumship. That is not the role of uh, a folklore-based podcast. Um, We are just going to talk about one person who was involved in that particular practice. But it's more complicated than that as well, since even though he was involved in that particular practice um, and caught banging to rights, um, it's fair to say that his motives for doing so are unusual and that one person who was involved in the events still considers him to be the real deal, even though he was caught faking. Excellent. So we are already off. We're already off to a fascinating start. This is why it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, let's let's begin at the beginning but before we do that let's maybe some background yeah let's begin at the very beginning which which is for those people who don't know you and your work because they maybe haven't been to one of our other events that we host uh through the rural gothic uh presentations or have um not attended any of your other seminars or similar things tell everybody a little bit about yourself first Okay, so my name's Howard, Howard Ingham, and I am the writer of We Don't Go Back, A Watcher's Guide to Folk Horror, and more recently, the book Cult Cinema, Personal Exploration of Sex, Brainwashing, and Bad Religion in Film and Television. But I also wrote a book called The Age of Miracles, which is a collection of essays about the birth of the New Age, about Atlantis, about 
how people start believing odd things when history goes all right i'm actually the i i have a very very weird life um ethically ideologically speaking i'm i'm the um the child of a spiritualist medium and an occasional ritual magician who in order to um rebel hard against their parents um got into evangelical religion at university um this made for an interesting upbringing all these things in the past but um after my dad died, I inherited his collection of occult books and magazines, and I became really interested. I used, I used to read my dad's occult books and magazines when he wasn't looking as a kid. And so I developed at a very early age a sort of like very odd eclectic sort of scattering of knowledge about things like theosophy and magic and spiritualism as well. And, uh, my dad had a collection of mag of he well he for years he bought Prediction magazine, hmm. and um, in the late seventies, um, there raged in the pages of Prediction magazine a controversy concerning one Gordon Higginson. And um, in recent years, I became kind of obsessed in finding out what happened to cause that controversy what the background was and what the truth of it was. I, I became really interested in discovering what actually went on there. Okay. So let's start by, by tell us a little bit about um, Gordon himself uh, and his own background to lead into this. Okay. So Gordon Higginson was born in 1918. He lived until 1993. He's considered still by the Spiritualist National Union or the SNU, um, to be one of the greatest psychics in history, um, one of the greatest trance mediums in history. He is one of two honorary presidents in spirit of the Spiritualist National Union. That is, he's one of the two people who've passed over to the other side who are still considered to occasionally turn up to meetings, mm. as far as I can make out. Who's the um, other? Arthur Conan Doyle. Ah. Because of course it is. Yes. Um, was Arthur Conan Doyle a medium? Or was he just like, because he, he was no, the president he, of the Spiritualist National Union, but... Yeah, he, he was a great supporter of spiritualist yeah. mediumship rather than being one himself, yes. Right. So Arthur Conan Doyle is the other one. Um, so he is up there in the annals of great spiritualists. He's the second most important spiritualist, according to the SNU, in history after Arthur Conan Doyle. Right. So you have to immediately be careful of Gordon Higginson um, and what you said. But it appears that several times over his life, he wasn't just caught faking. He was caught bang to rights faking. Right. Mm. And this is where it gets really interesting. So, okay. So a bit more about him, right? He, the thing is, right. One, one interesting thing is, is he's the fourth child of a prolific medium called Fanny Higginson. He's the only one who turned out to be a medium himself. And he grew up 
um, closely associated to the Longton Spiritualist Church in Stoke-on-Trent, and he became the president of the Longton Church, the equivalent of a minister, in 1946. So he was 28. He was quite young. Hmm. Okay. But he began to display mediumistic abilities as a small child. He supported himself by running a grocer's shop. I imagine, I don't actually know, but I imagine it's kind of like one of those open all hours go grocer shops. Yes, yes, considering the uh, the time, yeah. the decade this was. Yeah, yeah, sort of corner shop. Yeah. And this is an important thing, right? Because um, I know that my mother specifically um, still considers the idea that you might use spiritualist, spiritual, psychic powers um, for money or that you might make a profession of it as morally wrong mm. right and that's, i think i think it's kind of a middle class thing there i think it's generally just not considered respectable you're supposed to be like a gentlewoman or a lady gentleman or a lady and you're supposed to be able to do this and support yourself in other ways so his entire life he supported himself running a grocery shop he, and then there's vitally important right never gained a penny for his spiritualist stuff beyond expenses mm. if he went across the country to demonstrate as he did frequently he would get accommodation and sustenance and travel and not a penny more than that quite strict on this point quite proud of it as was the case never gained a penny this is kind of important because um Obviously, you know about the Fraudulent Mediums Act of 1951. Absolutely. Yeah, we've covered it before on the podcast, in fact. Right. Yeah. So what can you tell me about the Fraudulent Mediums Act? Well, essentially that um, it passes into law that it becomes a criminal offence to act fraudulently for personal gain by professing to be a medium. Yes. But the undertone is also that it's legal to be a medium. Yes, it's not illegal which to be the one. First, yeah, it's the first, and it made, it made witchcraft legal as well, which is why mm. Gerald Gardner could stop calling himself Skyer and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, so by 1969, so he's he's a psychic at 12. He's running seances at 12. He's 28. He's got his own church. He's doing demonstrations across the country from 1949 onwards, and he became president of the SNU, the SNU in 1969 okay so so he's a deal right he's a big deal he made it onto national tv there were news reports about him there's at least one news report you can find on youtube in fact which shows him conducting um a meeting you know a, a sort of spiritualist meeting i'm getting a message from someone who whose dog died and you know that sort of thing and and it was it was a terrible terrible you know that sort of thing and He's interviewed in this, and he's, so he's in on the news. He gets television coverage. He's he's famous for a while. He's low key famous, which is kind of important. So, so it's so like in yeah, so nine forty nine, and he's all over the psychic news for twenty odd years. So nine forty nine, he appears in Manchester and does a demonstration in. Um, I've got my notes here. He's got a 1951. I've got a story from ni- another story from 1951 in South Wales. 
Um, he appears as a great young pioneer of spiritualism at the big national conference in that year, right? So he's the great white hope of spiritualism. He goes to Manchester in 1958. Um, he gives evidences. They like talking about evidences in the psychic news and psychic. It's the spiritualist stuff. Evidence is one of like the buzzwords mm. because they consider themselves to be an evidence-based religion, Christian spiritualists. And, and SNU spiritualists, um, like fifty nine. He's he's performing a, a range of he's performing a range of things as well, isn't he? He's a trans he medium, uh, but uh, and and a visualization medium at times and, as and, well, and a healer as well. Right. Although I can't I can't talk about anything about his healing stuff because there's very little about that in the document in in documentation I found. Mm. Um, but he. Yeah, he, he is. He's a physical medium, which is one of the places where it's going to get unstuck later on. Right. But he is known for producing ectoplasm. Um, there are spirit trumpets. Um, and there are manifestations of spirits mm. coming out of manifestation cabinets. Um, do you know what a manifestation cabinet is? I mean, or what would our viewers know what a manifestation cabinet is? The idea is, is that you have a chair. And you've basically just got what amounts to something the size of a wardrobe surrounded by curtains. And the medium, in order to be secluded, but still able to be in front of an audience, steps inside the manifestation cabinet, sits on the chair, and then manifests the spirit which comes out of the manifestation cabinet. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's, it's uh, one, of, one of the traditional kind of Victorian seance room, parlour room um, mechanisms yeah. isn't it which still carries on into the into the sort of middle of the 20th century usually performed in the dark gordon higginson's Gordon one of, yeah it's got to be dark yeah or under red, red light, light in some cases yeah red light yeah, yeah. gordon yeah. higginson is probably like the last great medium to do this and also there are probably very very good reasons why he's the last great medium to do this mm. um so in 1959, the SNU took him to a secret destination and put him in front of 12 strangers and asked him to get messages for them. And this is recorded in the Psychic News by a guy called Charles Quastel, who writes Postscript. And, and it, it's, what's really interesting is that I've seen entire transcripts they put. So, for example, the 14th case, the last one. Um, Higginson says, young man here who was drowned tells me he lives in Ambergate. There should be a gentleman and lady present who knew him. They know someone belonging to him. Something to do with Chatsworth Crescent and Bull Bridge. He was in a boat with a friend, a friend named Tony. The boat turned over and he was drowned. The recipient says, yes, I know his father. I worked with his father. Um... And the demonstrator says his name is Richards, Colin Michael Richards, and his friend was Tony Cresswell. And the recipient of the message says that's quite correct. And there's no way he could know that. It's a double blind test. So this is important because there are, Higginson did stuff that is not yet explained. Mm. okay 
that there there are that's some inexplicable shizzle right there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And if there is an explanation for it, there may be an explanation for it. There may be all sorts of explanations for it. Um, but this demonstration in 1959 basically convinced a lot of people that Gordon Higginson was the real deal. He was put to the test. He was put to the test because he was doing some spectacular stuff or was claimed to do some spectacular stuff. And so he gets, does this. People think that's really, really inexplicable. He might actually be the real deal. Okay. Um, Nineteen sixty-one. He starts speaking out about the decline of spiritualism in the country. Starts making him, himself appear in spiritualist politics. Okay, so he moves from demonstrating, which he's still doing, and then moves and becomes um, someone who starts speaking up about the state of the organisation the spiritualist movement in the UK. Um, Gordon Higginson took the opportunity of speaking his mind as well as, as well as demonstrate. So he gives a demonstration and then gives a talk about the state of spiritualism. Okay. He came out with a number of hard hitting statements about spiritualism. And that's, he says, the thing that is wrong with spiritualism today is not the churches and not the mediums. It has become something you can buy. We cannot all be commercialized, he emphasized. No one has ever paid me for my works. I gave my bookings to the SNU for the last 12 months because, the, because there were small churches over stables and in back rooms. It's no use complaining about them, said Higginson. We must give themselves our services so they can build themselves up into larger churches. So... He is basically saying, no, we have to explicitly fight back against the idea that we might gain money from this. Yeah. So he's not in it for lucrative benefit. He's in it to promote the religion. He's in it to promote the religion. Yeah. And this is important, which brings us to the case of Phyllis Simpson. OK, so. Phyllis Simpson was the secretary of the British United National Spiritualist Church in Bristol, Grosvenor Road, or the Buns Church, as I like to think of it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, Mrs. Simpson had Gordon and, and the people at the British United National Spiritualist Church had Gordon Higginson there for a demonstration, as you do. He was the president by this point in, 19, in February 1976. He'd been the president for seven years. He'd been reelected, in fact, at this point. Right. Um, he gave an amazing demonstration. However, some a number of people at the Buns Church, led by Mrs. Simpson, were not impressed. Um, he'd apparently and they wrote to the psychic news. And uh, Mrs. Simpson made these allegations. Before the meeting, he had been left alone in a room in the church for an hour. He'd asked to be left alone. A room in which the church address list was displayed on a notice board, along with the healing book and the raffle list. So you've got this book where people are basically write down the ailments that they need to have fixed so that they can get healing from 
the spirits, the people in the church. Right. Okay. Um, incidentally, the days before the Data Protection Act, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Names um, and phone numbers and addresses. Names, phone numbers and addresses yeah. in, an, in, in a freely accessible meeting. Um, he gave eight messages at the demonstration. Although a hundred or more people came from elsewhere, he's a big draw. You know, he's the most famous spiritualist in the country at the time. His messages were only for people in the church records. He gave phone numbers, addresses and surnames, but not Christian. And spirits seem to be really good at knowing phone numbers. No Christian names. Mm. Yeah. Um, so they make these accusations against him that yes. this is not a good demonstration. As so you would he's basically say. in the room, right? Yeah. Um, the Spiritist National Union responded in the psychic news with an official statement. They said that the letter was an action of discredit to spiritualism in general and mediums in particular. Not the things alleged, the letter. Yes, the fact that they were calling it out in the first place. That's the thing that's, that's not cricket. Problem. Yeah. Um, this is where Prediction Magazine comes in. Now, Prediction Magazine, as I'm sure you're familiar with Prediction Magazine, I'm actually privileged to have collected a 10-year run between 1976 and 1986 and a few scattered ones on either side, right? It was a popular magazine, wasn't it? It was the newsstand yeah. magazine. And you can see, my, my, one of my favourite articles is the 1966 one where someone writes in and says, so the Beatles have just said they're more popular than Jesus. Do you think that's true? And so the guy who, who's answering the question, who's called John Pendragon, says... Um, says, um, yes, well, everybody's going to have forgotten the Beatles in three years' time, um, <laughs> which I think is a desperately rubbish thing to have written in a magazine called <laughs> Prediction. Having said that, yeah. Prediction was never... One of my favourite things is that in the editorial, they are, whenever there's a psychic event that gets cancelled in the news section... They never, ever fail to bring out the um, unforeseen circumstances joke. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Never fail. It's beautiful. Anyway, um, there's a guy in Prediction who wrote, who he was an editor for years. He was a columnist for years. He, he, he wrote the occasional article right up to his death. And he's called Harold Merton. And this venerable occultist um, in the late 70s was writing the... Um, the monthly miscellany of news that you would get in the magazine. So there'd be a page and it'd be a collection of news stories. So there'd be a story about, I don't know, evangelical Christians picketing another magic shop or, and he has a piece. He opens his piece in um, the June, 1976. So four months after Phyllis Simpson's allegations, Merton says, looking in from the outside, so to speak, I would say that it just isn't good enough to attack those making the charges after declining to make a full investigation of the facts. Surely it is this attitude that should do a disservice to spiritualism and to Mr. Higginson, especially as the case was reported in the national media. Not the psychic news, the non-psychic news. Mm. 
the muggle news, if you prefer, the everyday news started reporting about this case. Okay, you know, it's like a page 13 story. It's not, not, you know, but it's in the newspapers. Okay, this is a deal. Especially as the newspapers had such wide circulation at that time compared to there as well. Yeah, right. Um, And Merton has got a point there. He basically sort of says, look, something's got to be done. You've got to investigate this um, Spiritualist National Union. And, you know, prediction at the time, you can you actually read his circulation from the previous month on the contents page of prediction from that period. Mm. And, you know, it's got, you know, it's, it's got tens of thousands of people reading it, right, across the country. It's got a big number of people. And the Spiritualist National Union at the time was considered to be moribund with 17,000 members na- nationwide, okay? Um, now it's got 2,000. Tops. Yeah. But... Um, Higginson writes about this. He handles it himself. He, he, well, I say he writes about it. This is on the side of angels. Gordon Higginson's autobiography, published in 1993, shortly after he died. My single favourite thing about it is that it's ghostwritten. Yes, yes. It was, there was a lady that, wrote yeah. history was like, I know, Bassett. Like, thank you yes Gene yeah. Bassett. yeah it's written by Gene it's re- it's it's compiled by Gene Bassett it's written in Higginson's own words anyway um I found the only copy of it I could find that wasn't going for like hundreds of pounds um it's way out of print mm. I managed to find one for 20 quid most other copies online were like people were asking 200 300 pounds for a copy which says something about what they're expecting someone to pay for it. Yeah, it's a, it's a rare book to find, isn't it? It's a rare book I lucked out. But anyway, um, Higginson writes, I was accused that during a service at Bristol, I gave messages to people whose name were in, names were in the church records. I would have had to have known where to find the records and moved several rows of chairs to get at them. While doing this, I will be in view of anyone coming into the church or find keys to unlock the kitchen where there was a raffle list. How does he know that the address list is hidden behind a stack of chairs? Mm. Or that the raffle list is in a locked kitchen? Well, maybe that came up. In the essential hearing, because it was eventually hearing. But how did he know it was behind a row of chairs? Right. Mm. Okay. Unless I would have had to move the whole bunch of chairs. Did you move a bunch of chairs? <laughs> yeah. You had an hour. You can move a bunch of chairs in an hour. If it was really hidden, he wouldn't have known. Okay. Thing is, right? This wasn't the first time. 1963, Higginson gives a talk in Ealing, gives a demonstration in Ealing. And his message, which includes phone numbers, um, 
happened to be phone numbers on pages which had been torn from the church record book. But nothing could be proven. He didn't have the pages on him. Okay, so there's an inquiry for that in 64, um, which essentially basically says, um, we're of a view that allegations against medium that he's falsified the evidence and against the minister that he's mutilated the church records are only justified on the very clearest of evidence. And there is no such evidence in this case. The evidence is circumstantial. And here's the thing, right? Thinking about it, thinking about it, if you're not a spiritualist, right? You'd think, how could he possibly have known what was on those missing pages? He would have had to have been psychic. He would have had to have been psychic. If you believe that he was psychic... Then there is no case. There's no case. So, you know... and then, Okay, so this, this story, the story that covers this, incidentally, is written by a guy called Maurice Barbanel. Maurice Barbanel was the editor of the Psychic News for many years and one of Gordon Higginson's best mates. Okay, in On the Side of the Angels, he is mentioned although he's only ever called barbie he's never called maurice and ne they never says he's called maurice barbanel he just called he's just called barbie in the book my best mate barbie um but yeah i mean maurice barbanel lived to right up ripe old age um yeah so in 1959 he's in He's done a couple of things. And in 1959, there's an accusation, going back even further, that he has not just repeated a directory entry, he's repeated a directory entry that was wrong. Um, and that he gave the address that was supposed to be of a well-known Welsh spiritualist who passed over to the other side, except there are two people of that name in the phone book, and he gave the wrong one. This sounds like something that should have been quite damning. Yes, but once again, the thing is, in a court of law, and they want it to be as serious and as due diligence as a court of law, they needed to make it clear that circumstantial evidence does not wash. Also, the basic thing like the only possible way that he could do this otherwise was that if he was psychic is really important. Especially as because the earlier demonstrations as well, where they are still unexplained. Yeah. And there are earlier demonstrations where it's unexplained. So <laughs> a lot of people are convinced he is the real deal. And a lot of people who believe that he's psychic and a lot of people who um, essentially do not want to put forward a view that because fundamentally you either work on the assumption that psychic phenomena do not exist or do exist. 
it's easy for someone like me who grew up with it and has, and I'll be honest, I'm fairly skeptical. Like my, my mum has never given me a correct message in my entire life. I've never had a correct message from my mum. Right. Yeah. Always wrong. Um, and that's kind of complex. I don't want to go into that because that's a whole different talk, but they don't want to start with the assumption that it's not real. They are starting with the assumption that it is real and therefore it has to be proved, proved, proved as it will be proved in a court of law. Yeah. Or be it a court of law that believes the spiritualist phenomena are real. So, okay, so you'd think that was damning, but it's not. 1964, he essentially repeats... Um, death notices from the Yorkshire Evening Post, word for word, in a demonstration in Leeds. Again, it's reported in the Psychic News. It got to the point where in 1969, he'd been accused of fakery so much that the Psychic News, that the Psychic News actually, at Maurice Barbonell's order, put forwards but basically they had a they had a moratorium on reporting about gordon higginson at all they stopped reporting on him and that then carried on until 1971 where of course they had to because then he was the president and you could put all sorts of motives but to be honest this man is my best friend it's a conflict of interests is basically a fairly he, he, um, Barbanel's in a difficult position, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. He can't, he can't report on him because it's like it's a person who's a close personal friend, a drinking pal, or whatever. Um, he can't report on him because it's it's a conflict of interests. Um, but in 1971, they had to because he's the president. Hmm. So the thing in. Bristol dragged its heels. And then in 1977, in January 1977, um, in the, the Spiritualism Today column, Roy Stemmen, who was also a columnist for the Psychic News at the time, basically broke silence and said, look, it's been nearly a year. What's going on? OK. In the July edition, he go. Stemmen goes and actually visits Mrs. Simpson, July 1977. So it's now a year and a half. He goes and visits Mrs. Simpson and basically says, what's going on? And gets Mrs. Simpson's side of the story. And he, he, well, right, he writes about that in the July version, which means it must be like April, March, because of the lead-in they had back then. But he, go, he went to visit Mrs. Simpson. Mrs. Simpson gave her side of the story. It's in the July edition. And he says, look, this is bad. This is bad because it's got to be sorted out because it's in the newspapers. Right. Um, Higginson wrote about this appearing, right? He, never, he doesn't mention prediction by name. And you've got to get, get the impression that actually it's kind of a sore point for him, but he's got to write about it. And he says, I suppose that when you've held the position of top mediumship for so many years, there will always be somebody somewhere who will want to pull you down. That somebody could never have been on the receiving end, or they would not in a hundred years put another person through the trauma 
I and other mediums have endured. My whole being hurt. My pride in being a good medium felt besmirched. Nevertheless, these things happened in my life. I cannot ignore and fail to record this. And then he fails to record exactly what happens. But it's interesting that he essentially sort of says, how could you do this to poor little me? Mm. How dare you? You know, he doesn't approach these things. He basically says, I was really hurt by this. Um, anyway, the July edition of Prediction is important because in between the 11th and the 15th of July, 1977, Roy Stemmen went to speak at the Third National Symposium of Spiritualism. And he's given a talk about some spiritualist thing. I don't know what it was on. And who should turn up on the front row of his meeting with a copy of the July edition of Prediction in his hand and a scowl on his face? But Gordon Higginson, who in the Q&A afterwards, basically called him out. Um, Stemmen said, OK, tell you what. Let's take it outside when this is over. So they take it outside. Um, they don't have a fist fight, I should say, but they take it outside and... Higginson basically harangues him for an hour, which I, I don't think that's normal behavior for someone who is the president of a national organization. Personally, I think that's, that that's problematic behavior, frankly. Um, but Higginson go in the October issue, he says, this is what happened. Okay. So here are the details that I got wrong, which Mr. Higginson wants me to correct. And then he goes, however, none of this changes one bit that is an accusation of fakery and none of this changes one bit and nothing's going on about it. But also something else happened a few days later. And Stemmen reports about this in the October issue. So that Sunday at the same venue, the Hayes Centre, Swanick, have you ever been there, by the way? I've not. No, I have. I, I, I went there for a conference of um, of one organization I was working for about 11 years ago and was delighted to know that it was where um, various spiritualist conferences had happened in the past. Um, so on Saturday, the 16th, it's then the Spiritualist National Union Convention. So they have the big national symposium of spiritualism on the 11th to the 15th. So Monday to Friday and then Saturday and Sunday. They have the SNU National Convention in the same venue. So it's spiritualist wall-to-wall for a week, two different events. At the 16th, Higginson gives a hard-hitting public address about the allegations, claiming he's innocent. I should say at this point that Higginson has already resigned and unresigned his presidentship of the SNU at this point. Right. He's resigned and then he's unresigned. Okay. So he withdrew his resignation. On the Sunday, he was supposed to give a keynote closing address. Okay. Um, however, the Sunday people dropped that day with the front page headline, fake top medium accused. Which raised the Bristol account, but also raised the worst allegations Yet, historic allegations going back to 1974. And this is where we come to the physical mediumship. 
A young parapsychologist named Dr. Barry Colvin just got his doctorate, um, became very interested in Gordon Higginson's physical mediumship. Um, He didn't write about this himself, I should say, until 2010. Because of the threats and the general distress that the whole event caused him, um, caused him just basically because it was such an awful experience in his life. He just didn't want to bring it back. But in 2010, he finally, in a, in a, in a, journal, in a journal called Psy Pioneer, which you can find online um, as a PDF, um, he explained how he would be going to meetings in 1974 into a series of meetings where Higginson did demonstrations of physical mediumship. Um, during the course of the sitting, certain figures appeared from time to time, a foot or so in front of the cabinet, writes Colvin. I could only see the top of the figure's head, which looked remarkably like that, the medium covered in some sort of material this being illuminated in the dim red light. At one point, a quantity of material could be seen coming from the medium's mouth and trailing downwards towards the floor. It appeared to be an inch or two wide at the top and broadened out to about nine inches lower down where it was then lost from sight. You know what that's called, don't you? What's that, the material? Ectoplasm. Yes, yes. Yeah, and um, I was just about to say, if uh, the Gordon Higginson entry on Wikipedia has a photo of, of this as well. It does, of him vomiting ectoplasm. Yeah, so if people want to see this, it's freely available on the Wikipedia page. So... Colvin goes with a guy called Brigadier Frank Spedding, a much older and more serious guy. And Colvin goes regularly and he gets to know Gordon Higginson and he gets to know a lot of the people who run these events. And he's quite open about who he is. He said, look, I'm a researcher. I'm really interested in finding out about the truth of these things. I'm not a debunker. I'm really, really keen to prove that these things are real. I want to have evidence and everybody, you know, after a while, these people are quite happy to have him hanging around in the meetings and sort of looking at things. Because one, they believe it's all real. And two, they're like, oh, it's just Barry. Okay. Anyway, so he's at one meeting. And it was during this phase of the proceedings. The, the, you know, he's... he's doing ectoplasm, he's making spirits come out. It was during this phase of the proceedings that I came to realise that something was amiss. As I closely examined the spirit form, albeit in dim light, I could clearly make out the features of the medium, and I had no doubt that the figure standing before me consisted of a normal light material such as cotton, draped over the medium's physical form. Frank Spedding, his companion, came to exactly the same conclusion, which prompted him to conclude in his report presented to the Society for Psychical Research. Our opinion was that the materializations were crude fakes, which should not have deceived anyone of normal intelligence. Colvin couldn't figure out, though, where he's getting the material. And then it clicked. He goes to two sub- subsequent meetings, and in each one, Higginson makes a show of wanting the chair that he's sitting on to be changed for something more comfortable. And then they bring in another chair from another room, and he sits on that one. And that chair is different to the ones that everybody else is sitting on in the hall. 
Anyway, between the meetings, Colvin goes and checks out the chair. I quickly fell under the seat covering of each of the chairs under the front row of the seating area. I just decided to start. And in fact, also, in fact, he actually doesn't even find it in the chair in the, in the, the cabinet. I decided to start in the center of the row and work outwards. Within just a few seconds, I discovered a large quantity of muslin-like material tightly wrapped up and placed underneath the seat of the end chair of the front row. It was also apparent that this chair was different from the majority in the room, having been taken from the dining room air earlier. The whole investigation took no longer than about 20 seconds. He continues, the chair in question was placed into the cabinet after the first section of, session of clever ones. So he'd asked for a different chair. They take this one that had come from the other room that's different, that's got the muslin cloth underneath in the place. I was later invited by the spirits to approach the cabinet and actually feel the ectoplasm. Clearly, it had the feel of the fabric I'd previously discovered. I left the seance immediately after its conclusion and did not return. It was a truly disappointing end to an investigation. He was just really, really low about this. Mm. Because what he had discovered was that Gordon Higginson had convinced people he had manifested spirits by the expedient of putting a sheet over his head and pretending to be a ghost. Yes, which when you describe it in those terms, you think, well, how is that going to fool anybody? But that's an interesting point. Mm. Because if you're in a meeting and you are expecting to see your dead mother, it's not just that you think you see your dead mother. You see your dead mother. You get into the position where you see your dead mother. You have an expectation. This expectation will be fulfilled because that's what faith is like. Yes. Okay. I am reminded of the case of Mrs. Murig Morris, who is another famous medium of the 20th century. And also a friend of Gordon Higginson in her later life. She's 1899 to 1991, so lived to be 92 Anyway, in, in the, um, the 1920s, Mrs. Morris sued the Daily Mail for, for libel, um, which led to one of the strangest libel verdicts ever brought by a British jury. OK, because she sued the Daily Mail for libel because the Daily Mail just basically said she was a fraud, right? Mm. OK, the Daily Mail said what Mrs. Morris used to do was that she used to be overpowered by the spirit of an anonymous medieval theologian who she called Power. And you had this tiny little sort of delicate elfin woman who would suddenly speak with a man's voice. Um, you've seen Night of the Demon, right? Yeah. And you've seen the bit with the, the, the spiritualist medium. He, he start, opens his mouth and the little girl's voice comes out. Yes. Yeah. yeah, this and is it, the opposite. This, this is a similar sort of thing, except it's a tiny little elfin-looking woman who starts speaking with a man's voice, a baritone. Yeah, it reminds me of the uh, recordings of the Enfield poltergeist case, which are available on YouTube and that kind of thing. See, there is, an, there is a recording of Mrs. Morris speaking in the voice of power. Here's the thing, right? There's a recording of it. The British Library has 
um, an old vinyl recording from the 1930s of her doing her power thing. And it sounds like a an elfin little woman speaking with a deep, fake man's voice. Sort of pretend man's voice. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, the thing is, right, anyone who was in the room with her didn't hear a woman speaking in a man's voice. They heard a man's voice. And they heard that man's voice because human perception is not the empirical objective thing that we think it is ever. Hmm. Human memory is not what we think it is. And I think one of the reasons, incidentally, why spiritualist stuff like spirit trumpets and ectoplasm and spirit manifestations are no longer done is because people started taping them. It was interesting that Barry Colvin basically said at these meetings that he was going to, can I bring the camera? And um, they were like, oh, I should be all right, but we'll ask. And then they come back and they're like, spirits say no. Spirits say no. We're okay with it. The spirits say no. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I feel like the, the little Britain computer says no. <laughs> it's like spirits say no. Um, and this is interesting because you have tried taping this, haven't you? Yourself. I have faked ectoplasm on video. You can find it on YouTube. You can find it on my blog. Um, and when, when you, when you post this, we can put a link to that. Yes, absolutely. I I have will, because I've seen it and it's entertaining. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed doing it. But yes, I managed to duplicate Gordon Higginson's um, stuff. It's gross and uncomfortable. It's not hard. Muslin cloth, cheesecloth, anyone who's ever had a baby has used it to soak up baby sick. Yes, we've like, all been there. We've all been there, all of us who've had children. Um, but yeah, the thing, the thing about muslin cloth is when it gets wet, you can squish it up really small. Mm. So you can actually sort of like roll it into a very, very long, very narrow sausage and feed it down your throat, suppress the gag reflex and vomit it up when you need to. Um, so going back to the 17th of July, 1977, Higginson doesn't give the keynote address at the SNU conference. He disappears. He vanishes. No one knows where he is for weeks. There are police reports and stuff. There's nothing left except a note. A note that reads, I must be given some time alone to decide the course I must take. Make no mistake, I shall not leave spiritualism or the union. They mean too much to me, but I do need a rest and to sort myself out. I've taken a tremendous battering with one thing and another. I know I shall collapse unless I call a halt for a while. I hope you will understand. Um, one of the things in abuse cases, particularly, is that people who are guilty of performing abusive behavior are often perform an action that is given the acronym DAVO, D-A-R-V-O, which stands for deny, attack, reverse victim and offender. Everything that Higginson writes has that feel to it. 
flatly denies it and then basically moves about how he's the victim. What he writes about Barry Colvin in his book is quite brutal, right? But what's interesting is that Colvin's story makes it into the Sunday people. But it, what happened was this, according to Colvin's account. Colvin basically had decided that he was just done with it. He was never going to talk about it ever again. Anyway, someone at the SPR, and he sort of says to someone, one of his colleagues at the Society for Psychical Research, <sighs> Gordon Higginson thing. Seriously, guy in, guy with a sheet over his head pretending to be a ghost. I can't express how de- depressing that is. It really got me down. You know, that sort of thing, right? Mm. And the Sunday people go to the Society of Psychical Research and basically say, um, you got anything on this Gordon Higginson guy that we can find out? And someone at the Society of Psychical Research says, oh, you know what? Barry did a thing a few years ago. And so the Sunday people go to Barry they get a hold of the report that Barry and Frank had sent to the Society of Psychical Research and put in a drawer and go to Barry Colvin. And they basically say, we'd really like you to help with this, with our big front page story on Sunday. And Barry Colvin says, Dr. Colvin says, no, not doing it. No, sorry. No, 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 no. I don't want you to run that. And they're like, no, you don't understand we are going to run it and you could correct it or not correct it, but we're going to run it. And so he's got no choice, but to set the record as straight as he can. So his name's all over it and he's quoted. He's got no hope. Right. Um, but he didn't want to do it. He just wanted to put a line into the thing. And I think that's why it took him 33 years to actually write about it really yes it's interesting that it's such a long gap isn't it well it's such a long gap partly because he was receiving like death threats and stuff right people were really really hated him for it Mm. okay because higginson had and still has a lot of fans there's a gordon higginson fan site on on the on the interwebs yes there is i was going to mention that later actually so and and maybe Um, still will and it's got videos. In fact, it's got the video of the news report yeah. where he's interviewed, which is fact, really interesting to see. Now it's come up. Let's let's mention it now. It is at gordonhigginson.co.uk. Uh, it is a tribute site yeah. to uh, Gordon, which, as you say, um, has a lot of uh, material, articles, audio, video, photos, um, built by a gentleman called Martin Twycross. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of information there. Um, Higginson's autobiography is also really interesting, although I honestly don't think Higginson comes out of it very good, very well. Mm. I don't think his autobiography makes him makes him look good. I'm, I'm reading it and I'm thinking, you, you are really self-regarding. You're really self-regarding and you're really kind of... Um, really, really feel like you've the one, you're the one that's been wronged. So let's just think for a minute about motivation here then, because yeah. it's, it's not financial motivation. We've already it's not financial established motivation. that. 
Is it recognition? Is it a desire to push spiritualism, genuinely push spiritualism forward? Does he just want to be at the forefront of that? Does he genuinely believe in his own abilities? I think there is a mixture of things, judging from what I can read. But you have to, you have to sort of, you, you have to sort of glean what you can from these different accounts. But I think what you get is that Higginson sincerely believed in spiritualism. And I think he really did want to push spiritualism forwards. I think he liked being the president. I think he liked being a big fish in a vanishingly small pond, which, of course, is now no more than a puddle. Mm. I think... You know, I've seen nano celebrity in many different kind of circles over the last 25 years. And it's really interesting to sort of see how people jockey for it for influence in very small groups of people. Um, But no, I think he genuinely really wanted people to believe in the spirits. And I'm reminded, actually, in my own experience of an evangelical minister I knew who I worked for for a, a few months who used to have. A call to a call at the start of the meeting, a, a sort of altar call at the end of the meeting, and he'd tell everybody to bow their heads and if they wanted to give give something up to Jesus, give their lives to Jesus, or give their life now to Jesus, or to move forward with Jesus, they could put their hand up, and then they, you know, so we could see them, and then they come to the come come to the front afterwards to be prayed for and. And then they come to the front to be prayed for. And um, you hear him. You'd have your head bowed and you'd hear him and you'd go, thank you. I see you. Thank you. Thank you, madam. I see you. Come and see me afterwards. And I remember being to one of those meetings with maybe like seven or eight people, apparently. Um, The first two, three or four were, in fact, invariably always made up. To encourage others. Yeah, because apparently the spirit needed a push, which is something that any serious theologian would have a serious problem with. But I think there's a history of spiritualism as theatre, going back to Higginson. Mm. There's a history of believing in believing that people will be more receptive if they have evidences. And I think a sincere belief that sometimes you have to lie to tell the truth. Sometimes a little white lie is important for the sake of a greater truth. Mm. So... Where does it go from here? He has this well, break. In January, he, he reappears as if nothing happened uh, uh, some weeks later. And in January, the Spiritualist National Union has um, its hearing. And Phyllis Simpson turns up and um, they hold it in the Grosvenor Road Church in Bristol. They get in a solicitor. They get in also 
um, a couple of international spiritualist leaders as for, for some outside accountability. Because, I mean, who's going to try the president? Right. And they hold it like a trial with a tribunal. Um, it goes on for days. There are shouting matches. The Daily Express, page three of Daily Express on the 24th of January gives the headline, Are You With Us, Mr. Higginson? Um, culturally speaking, what's really interesting about this headline is one, at no point does the entire page, it takes up the whole of page three almost. There's a little column about David Steele on the left, I can see, but it takes up most of the page. At no point do they need to tell you what a spiritualist is or what a medium is or does. And the column is written with the assumption that you have a greater than zero chance of knowing who Gordon Higginson is. So it's not like household name level kind of thing. It's mm. not Michael Jackson or, you know, whoever would be famous in 1978. Um, yeah, it's not David Bowie. He's not like that level. But he's well known enough that they assume that you, if they, they go the spirit, president of the Spiritualist National Union, mm. most readers will go, oh, that guy. Yeah, because, I mean, there were, there were two or three names at that time. Doris Stokes is another one who comes to mind, who were That's generally very well known. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, although Doris Stokes and Betty Shine are also... Um, Betty Shine particularly not considered to be particularly respectable by a lot of spiritualists. Mm. Doris Stokes is a bit... Maybe, maybe not. My mum liked Doris Stokes, but... Her know. books were very popular, weren't they? Very popular. I love, I love the fact that Doris Stokes' books are called Voices in My Ear, Innocent Voices in My Ear, Joyful Voices in My Ear. More um, Voices in My Ear. More Voices in My Ear. Yes. <laughs> it's like, you know, you can't falter for, for, for sticking to a winning formula and milking it as far as much as you could. Um, the Verdict. So Mrs. Simpson had a solicitor called Paul Mildred. Every single name and address that was given was contained within these books. Not one other detail, such as a Christian name or pet name, was given, which is a wholly remarkable and unexplained fact. And in my submission, that was where they were got from. Right. So there were matters, said the final judgment, however, which we found proved, which gave rise to a reasonable suspicion that being the case, we do not regard the complaint as being made unjustifiably. But they still found him innocent. They couldn't, fi- well, they, they couldn't find him guilty specifically because he's innocent until proven guilty because they're mm. taking it like it's a court of law. Yes. Uh, and the, this is all circumstantial, as we said before. And it's all circumstantial, particularly if you believe that mediums exist. Yeah. So this is the thing. Roy Stemmon was not impressed. So in his roundup in May 78, it poses the question, what sort of a medium is Gordon Higginson? Why? And his spirit communicators can tell him names and addresses with such unerring 
accuracy did they not give their Christian names the names which they were most commonly used or give detailed information about any other matters if as he says he did not look at the records I'm forced to conclude that his psychic powers are doing so instead so the sooner he develops a new mediumistic approach which sounds more like a dialogue from the next world and less like a telephone directory the better the tea is hot and salty. Yes, this is quite a damning, um, quite a damning statement, really, isn't it? However, in the news, it, it was not the same. So um, the Daily Mirror reports on February twenty third, nineteen seventy eight, because it took about a month. Happy medium sees off cheat charge. You see what they did there. Mm-hmm. Clairvoyant Gordon Higginson was cleared yesterday of cooking the spooks at a séance. Gotta love the tabloid press. Gotta love the gutter press. Um, so the trial ends on 22nd of February. On the 23rd of February, Higginson resigned his presidency again. By April, he was re-elected president of the Spiritualist National Union. In May, he held a psychic surgery demonstration at Swanick, which was investigated by the BBC. Yes, and, and this, this is uh, uh, a, a psychic surgery couple from Australia, if I remember right. A rightly. very famous one. Um, yeah. I can't remember the names off the top of my head. but uh, I've got a note. But they're the famous ones. Yeah, David and Helen Elizald. Yeah, the El- Elizalds, that's right. David and Helen Elizald. Who and, James um, Randi examined um, the case, didn't he? He, he, he did. seen, filmed footage of them it's really really interesting actually because um is 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 um what what was it yeah no apparently apparently they discovered that the blood that was like coming out of people even though there were no cuts or anything was actually coming from a condom they tested it didn't they and found it to be yeah. pig's blood pig's blood Yes, pig's blood coming from a condom, and 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 and, and Higginson was quite. Um... Well, he he believed in their veracity, hadn't he? He had. So he, I mean, he writes about it in um, in his autobiography, and once again, he is. Um, he, he he he's 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 once again like kind of kind of indignant about it he sort of says how could it be pig's blood it was my blood um my blood in that condom um i'm not sure what that proves um by october stemmen writes about it one more time and and this is this is kind of he basically says it puzzles me that spirit helpers should have such poor memories that they allow the same communicators to monopolize his mediumship when I'm sure there were others present who'd never had a message from him. He, he went to a meeting. He, he'd gone on holiday. And who should be doing a demonstration at the local spiritualist church but Gordon Higginson? And he went, and there was a woman who had a stunning, stunning, fantastic message from him. And Stemmon went up and talked to the woman. He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, he's had messages for me five times. Um, I always go to his meetings. And it's like, so you know him. 
sort of. And the recipient, incidentally, assured me that she had received evidence from Higginson that he could not possibly have known. So Roy Stemmen, I had the opportunity to exchange a couple of emails with and then he fell off the map. And that's just how it goes. But I exchanged a couple of emails with Roy Stemmen. And you've got to bear in mind that it's Stemmen who fought for the, um, the inquiry into Higginson's alleged fakery. Hmm. It was Stemmen who was very clear that he was absolutely scandalised by the verdict at the inquiry. But he writes this. He wrote this to me. I have no doubt that Higginson had genuine mediumistic powers and when at his peak was capable of providing information which, as far as we could tell, was beyond normal means of being acquired. At his best, it seems, he was capable of getting that sort of information clairvoyantly or clairaudiently. But it is also clear that there were times when he looked up church records, as in the Bristol case, to ensure he put on a good performance. Perhaps his demonstrations were a mixture of genuine and cribbed information. So to summarise, Higginson never got accepted, never accepted money for his psychic work. He clearly got rumbled several times. He responded with deny attack, reverse victim and offender tactics. So he, he responded in the way that makes you think, sharp intake of breath through the teeth. You know what I'm saying? Um, he remained the minister at Longton Spiritualist Church, the president of the Spiritualist National Union and the president of the Arthur Findlay College, which is the college where they teach mediums until his death in 1993. So he remained from 1978 when he was re-elected, he remained president for another 15 years until he died. Okay. He is now considered one of the Spiritualist National Union's two honorary presidents in spirit alongside Arthur Conan Doyle. And basically oversaw the death spiral of spiritualism. Um, back in, in, in 1979, Roy Stammen's final um, column for prediction, where he talks about, he basically says, in the case of the Spiritualist National Union, I believe that his demise will be hastened by his election and re-election of a controversial president whose psychic gifts have been called into question. The point being that, and, and Stemmen's article, by the way, his final column essentially has the kind of screw it all, I'm done kind of feel to it. And obviously he got out. He's now the editor of the Psychic News, in fact. But um, Stemmen basically called it. He basically said that it's dying. In 1979, it was down to like 17,000 members, which was apparently considered to be a death spiral. Now it's got 2,000. Um he basically says spiritualism is in a death spiral and this guy is not going to reverse it. And as beloved as Gordon Higginson was, 
by his fans. But clearly as difficult as he was to people who crossed him, this was definitely the case. Thank you. It's a fascinating case. And I wonder, just to wrap this up, why it's not that well known now when you consider the amount of coverage that there was at the time, the quite damning evidence in some cases, and yet the belief that there were still genuine things going on. Even Simmons said to you, you know, that, that it is likely that there were some genuine abilities there. Why did it slip into such obscurity, do you think? Okay, within a year of Gordon Hinkinson's death, who was the most famous psychic in the UK? Uh, so he died in the 90s. So that would be as Derek Acora was emerging. Or, or yeah, in lottery terms, yes. I'd, I think that's a very different type of psychic. It is. But at the same time, that's the sort of popular view by the 90s that people had of spiritualism. Yes. Derek Acora, Mystic Meg. Yeah. Right. And, you know, uh, you, 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 we, we, we himself have had, like, on Rural Gothic, the guy who essentially caught Derek Akora fudging, cooking the spooks, as it were. Yes, you know? yes. Um, uh, um, and yeah. Kieran O'Keefe, who, who has also done a lecture, uh, a podcast lecture as well on um, yeah. psychic detectives for us, too. Yes. Um, but the, but, uh, but Kieran... Kieran is a, a proper sceptic, which means he's open-minded. He's, he's not like, this is yeah. all fakery. It's just that he had the evidence, and that is what you were referring to earlier. He had the evidence in that case to be able to present to say, I can prove that this particular instance was faked. In the same way that Dr. Colvin um, found the sheet of cloth that Gordon Higginson put over his head. Mm. Um to pretend to be a ghost. Not that it mattered because people thought that they were seeing lost parents. They thought they were hearing their mother's voice and that sort of thing. Well, they were seeing lost parents. They were hearing the voice of a lost parent. And this is what makes this so difficult, isn't it? This is, this is the age old debate is, is that, yeah, yes. uh, Fraudulent mediumship where, where money is changing hands you know, uh, and it is proven to be fraudulent, is obviously wrong, it's obviously a bad thing. The psychology of these other cases, people are genuinely believing that they're seeing things, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, is a lot more difficult to, to come to terms with, isn't it? As, as you can't put it down to right or wrong or one thing or the other. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. In fact, the fraudulent mediums act has been repealed now, and there's a different kind of thing, yeah, going on. But um, but yeah, it's it's really difficult. But I think the central thing is that Higginson was one of the people who believed that you have to lie to tell the truth. And I think that's the thing. I think that spiritualism stopped being taken seriously in the 1980s. I think Doris Stokes and Betty Shine were the end of spiritualism. Well, Betty Shine's not really a spiritualist. She's sort of a new age type. But Doris Stokes was basically the end of spiritualism as a popular phenomenon. Hmm. 
Um, my mum stopped going to spiritualist churches in the 90s because there wasn't one she could go to. Um, the thing is basically spiritualism has been in the death spiral and people don't care about it. People care about witchcraft. People care about paganism. Um, spiritualism, I mean, it's like theosophy. You don't hear about philosophy that much. You know, um, our, our four, another rural Gothic guest, actually, Jake Stratton Kent, has some salty things to say about theosophy. Mm -hmm. He's got no time for it. Um, it's quite funny, actually. Um, but again, things like theosophy, like spiritualism, like those Victorian New Age and occult movements are things that I think have they're not fashionable enough for people to care about. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Times, times change. Things move on, times I guess, change. don't they? Things yeah. move on. Yeah. And these things are things that sadly are no longer interesting for a lot of people. I think also one of the things that I've discovered actually is that people aren't really interested in the psychology of stuff like this beyond the simple question of whether it's real or not. Yes. Like there are loads and loads and loads of books. One of my, one of my, my real obsessions is about Atlantis and about how there are loads and loads and loads of books about this obviously fictional continent as if it supposedly existed loads of books with all sorts of evidence and stuff like that right and no one's actually interested in what produces these stories or even the history of these stories mm. um which is something i've been writing about for years now for like 20 years but they're just interested in knowing whether it's real or not yeah uh, and and this this is a point that I make often, and this is precisely where where folklore comes into this whole equation, isn't it? Uh, and I've said this many times when when we talk about anything to do with ghosts, for example, we are not interested in whether ghosts exist or whether ghosts don't exist. We are interested in why people have the individual or shared experiences that they do and how these stories persist that's where folklore comes into it and like you say it, to just say uh gordon higginson's abilities were real or they were fake it's only a very small part of the discussion which actually people should be having to to look at the whole psychology of these things uh, and that's where the interest lies isn't it in many ways it's, well, it's where my interest lies. I mean, and then, of course, the book I've recently brought out, Cult Cinema, one of the points I make in that is that I'm not really interested in whether God exists or not in the yep. story. Because religions, and by extension, psychics and people who believe in magic and stuff and ghosts, would do what they do, whether these things exist or not. God doesn't have to exist for a religion to continue to exist. It will just poodle along either way. And therefore, my interest is in 
how it pools along, how it does its thing, why it does its thing, why people believe and how people believe and what this causes them to do to each other. Which is exactly where the, the crossover with the kind of material that we cover on here comes in, isn't it? And this is a great place to wrap yeah. up. So if people want to read your thoughts on what we've talked about today or on folk horror or on cult cinema and these areas of interest which which do cross over so so much with our own where where should they go to find your work online and where should they go to buy your books okay well you can buy my books on amazon i am howard david ingham um i've written various books about book about the new age and about um weird history is called the age of miracles that came out in 19 2016 um, in 2018, I produced um, We Don't Go Back, a watcher's guide to folk horror. And recently, in the last couple of months, I produced Cult Cinema. I blog at room207press.com. You can see videos of various talks I've given about Gordon Higginson, about theosophy, about Atlantis, about David Icke, and about various things involving film and television on my Patreon, um, which is patreon.com slash Howard David Ingham. And um, I'm also um, one of the managing panel at a fantastic series of events called Rural Gothic, um, in which um, I'm one of, one of the three people who run that, um, and uh, of which you are one of the others. I am, and Icy Sedgwick, host Icy of the Sedgwick. fabulous Folklore Podcast, is the third, and I'm sure a lot of people who listen to this will have, will have seen many, many social media posts about that too. Howard, thank you so much for taking the time to discuss what is a, a brilliantly interesting case. I will put links on the Folklore Podcast website to all of the places that you have just and highlighted. And faking ectoplasm. And indeed the video of you faking ectoplasm, which does, I admit, have to be seen to be believed. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. My thanks to Howard for discussing their in-depth investigations into the life and work of Gordon Higginson. In a moment, I'll let you know what's coming up next on the Folklore Podcast, but first. The Folklore Podcast continues to be produced thanks only to the generosity of our Patreon supporters. In return for a small amount each month, just a dollar at the entry level, supporters get bonus audio content, early access to interviews and other exclusive extra rewards. Without that support, well, the podcast would not still be here. To help us keep going, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast and sign up. Or make a small one-off donation, if you enjoy what we do, on our homepage at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. Thank you. On the next episode of the podcast, I'll be discussing the sightings of ghost ships found throughout history off the coast of Newfoundland. My guest for that episode, Karen Murray-Bergqvist, has an ongoing research project recording and plotting these stories on an interactive map. To finish today, we have another track from an album of music for which permission to play on the podcast has been generously given by the artist. If you're a performer working in a style reflective of the Folklore Podcast content and would like to hear some of your work on the show, do get in touch and let us know. We'd love to feature you in the future. This is Gentle is the Angel by Alison Callery. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
gentle, gentle is the angel. Gentle, gentle is the angel who blows the candle out. Just grafted you with human hands, and the stars in the night swept round her face. Was the moon in the sky to come to kiss you goodbye? Gentle, gentle is the angel. Gentle, gentle is the angel who blows the candle out. Teeth were long and white, and voices low. And the frozen air you work with shallow breath. And you stood alone in the snow with a scent of blood. Blows the candle.